0: Here's a question for you. Would Jesus do Christmas? Would Jesus do Christmas? If Jesus were living in Scotland today, would he celebrate Christmas? And if he would, how would he do it? Now, leave aside the fact that Jesus almost certainly wasn't born on the 25th of December. Those of you are thinking, ah, it's a trick question. It's obvious that uh, in our society today, Christmas has become less and less a Christian festival focused on the birth of the Saviour, and more and more a secular festival focused on shopping. I was wondering this week what I could use as an opening illustration and then... On Thursday, lo and behold, one was posted through my letterbox. Wonderful. And here it is. This is a a Christian, uh, sorry, a Christmas catalogue from a company called, I Want One of Those. Uh, The strap line is, you probably can't see it on the screen, I'll read it to you because it really is wonderful. Stuff you don't need, but you really, really want. (laughs) I mean... That's, you know, how do you parody something like that? Well, products in this catalogue include, I want to share this with you, a voice command Dalek, an inflatable horse suit, <laughs> one size fits all, it says, and a remote-controlled pair of lederhosen. Batter is not included. Shame on you, uh, who have just noted down the website address of this (laughs) catalogue. Well, that's my illustration, and of course it's an extreme example, at least I hope you think it's extreme, but none of us, of course, are immune to the consumerist pressures of Christmas. Because let's face it, there is always stuff we don't need, but we really, really want. So, what would Jesus make of our contemporary celebration of Christmas. Well, we don't have to speculate because our reading in Luke's Gospel this evening presents us with Jesus' radical teaching on money, possessions and giving. And at this time in history, 21st century, at this time of year, Christmas, that could hardly be more relevant to us. In fact, Uh, As I studied this passage this week, it occurred to me that Jesus' teaching touches directly on three topics, money, religion, and sex, hence the title of tonight's message, Money, Religion, Sex. Now I ask you, does anyone think much about these topics these days? Just a little bit. I mean, really, what, uh, what could be more relevant to our society today? open your newspaper at any page or turn on the television uh, any day of the week and the chances are that the content will have to do with either money or religion or sex and if it's a report about the anglican church well all three <laughs> and here we have and here we have the teaching of jesus christ the son of god which speaks to all three areas This is first-century teaching for 21st-century people. It's almost tailor-made for us. So let's see what Jesus has to say on these topics and try to apply his teaching to our own circumstances and to the challenges that we face today. So begin with money money, verses 1 through 13. As we've already mentioned, the the parable of the shrewd manager, as it's called, that's the title you'll see in the NIV, this parable is considered one of the most difficult parables to interpret. Well, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, so I will now try to explain the main point of the parable. Let's first review the story. It begins with a rich man, so rich in fact that he can't manage all his riches by himself, just too much. So this rich man uh, had hired a manager to make sure that all his wealth was put to good use so that he would become an even richer rich man. This manager would have made investments on his master's behalf. Uh, In particular, he would have arranged loans of money and goods. But we learn that this particular manager is in trouble. He's been accused of wasting his master's possessions. Verse 1. And uh, this doesn't appear to be sheer incompetence. It seems to be deliberate dishonesty. If you look down to verse 8, he's described as dishonest. He's been caught with his hand in the till. And these accusations seem to be irrefutable because his boss has already decided to let him go. The manager, manager is told to give an account of his management, uh, not, not to give him the chance to keep his job, but to give him the chance to avoid something worse, like prison. So this manager has to take swift action. The dole cue beckons. Now, having spent uh, many years in a comfy chair, juggling bills and counting coins, uh, he's not exactly Mr. Universe. So, construction work is out. In any case, manual labour is well beneath someone of his uh, social standing. And the idea of him begging for money is just uh, inconceivable. Now, the manager has to find some way to keep himself in the manner to which he's become accustomed. So, he devises a cunning plan. And this is the plan. He'll go to all the remaining debtors of his master and settle their debts for a greatly reduced amount. And these debtors will be immensely grateful to him, of course. And then, uh, when he finally receives his P45, he will call in all these favours. Perhaps one of these new friends of his will find him a new job. At the very least, they'll show him hospitality until he can find his feet again. So he goes to the first debtor. How much do you owe? 800 gallons of olive oil? Call it 400. Just sign here. And the next debtor, how much do you owe? Or oh, 1,000 bushels of wheat? Call it 800. Just sign here. So on and so on, till all the bills are settled. Now, you may well wonder, how on earth could he get away with this? If you're an accountant and uh, you happen to be facing redundancy and you try tried a stunt like this, uh, you wouldn't just be sacked, you'd be arrested. But actually, there's uh, more going on here than meets the eye, at least our 21st century eye. In those days, uh, financial managers were always allowed to charge a commission for their services, and often that was a very substantial commission. And their masters didn't really care how much they were going to charge as a commission, as long as their managers got the job done. And so the manager in this parable almost certainly wrote off his commission on each of these transactions. But what's more, uh, Jews in the first century were forbidden by Old Testament law from charging any interest on loans, at least to other uh, fellow Jews. So to get around this, many businessmen in Jesus' day would simply overcharge instead. They would use an inflated price system to make a healthy profit without having to call it interest. Apparently they thought... God would be okay with this creative accounting method. But deep down, everyone knew that it was an immoral practice, including this manager. And so, uh, all things considered, the best explanation for his actions in this parable is that uh, he not only wrote off his own commission, but he also corrected the inflated charges used by his master. That's how he got these discounts. And so the point is, He could get away with his plan. He could get away with it. It was a very smart plan. And what's more, his master realised that. He had actually put his former employer in an awkward position. In the first place, this manager uh, already had the right to forego his own commission. There's nothing the master could do about that. And then if the master kicked up a fuss about the rest of the discount... Well, that would only serve to draw public attention to his own dodgy business practices. And so the best response for the master was simply to let it pass. And that, that explains the very surprising conclusion to the parable. Now, Jesus' parables nearly always had an unexpected conclusion that was designed to take people by surprise. And this parable is no exception. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, don't misunderstand. The master was not pleased at what the manager had done. He'd been ripped off. But even so, he had to admire the ingenuity of the man who had ripped him off. As one commentator notes, uh, there's a big difference between praising a clever manager for his dishonesty and praising a dishonest manager for his cleverness, which is, of course, what happened here. So that's the story, but what's the point? What's the point? The point is actually very simple, once you understand the story. It's in the second half of verse 8, and you can tell that this is the lesson of the story, because it begins with the word for. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are, the people of the light. The parable is about how those in the kingdom of God should handle their financial resources. And the lesson is simply be prudent. Be prudent. Be prudent in the way that you use what you have now. The manager represents the people of this world. He was clever. He was forward-thinking. He took a long-term view. He made careful plans in light of the future, in light of what he wanted, based on the means that he were at his disposal in the present. And Jesus' point is, if the people of this world can be so prudent in the use of their financial resources in order to get what they want, how much more prudent should be the people of the light, the followers of Jesus? we should be even smarter. We should be even more forward-thinking. We should take an even longer-term view because we know that eternal consequences are at stake in the way that we live now, not just our employment prospects a few months from now. But Jesus knows that this isn't always the case for his followers. We often don't use our financial resources as if we have eternal realities in view. We spend our money as if what happens tomorrow is more important than what happens in 100,000 years' time. So let me just invite you to reflect on how you use your money and your other resources. Are you being prudent in the way that you use them, given what you believe as a follower of Jesus? Are you spending for tomorrow, or are you spending for eternity? Now, the reason that many people get confused after reading this parable is that after making this first point, Jesus goes on to make several other points which build on the first point and give further principles about our proper attitude to money. People see these other points and they think, oh, hold on, which is the point? Is it this point or that point or so on? There are actually several points being made here. Here comes the next one, verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is the second principle about our use of financial resources. Be generous. Be generous. One way to be prudent with your money, in light of eternity, is to be generous with your money. Commentators on this verse agree that uh, when Jesus talks about using worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves... Uh, He's not suggesting that we host cocktail parties for the rich and famous. You probably work that out for yourselves. No, what he's talking about is giving alms to the poor. That is charitable giving for the most needy in society. And the idea is that this generosity will help to win people for the kingdom. And if you live in this way, prudently and generously you will be welcomed into heaven. Not so much by these people, but by God. Because at the end of the day, only God has the divine right to welcome people into heaven. So that's the second principle. But there's more. Jesus wants to make further points about the prudent use of money. Verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted, trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Once again, the principle is actually quite simple be faithful. Be faithful. You need to be consistent. You need to show prudence and generosity, both in small matters and in large matters. Do you want God to do great things through you? Have you ever thought that? I want God to do great things through me. Well then, first of all, you need to show yourself faithful in the small things. And perhaps the best test of your faithfulness is in the financial arena. Because so much temptation lies there. So much temptation to compromise and to cut corners. So let me ask, are you being a faithful steward with your money? Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. Whatever you have, you have to remember that ultimately it all belongs to God. That's what's said in verse 12, after all. God has entrusted it all to you. Will you show yourself worthy of that trust? Will you be faithful? There's one more principle to come. And this is the climax of what Jesus has to teach us here about money. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What's the principle here? It's this. Be undivided. Be undivided in your allegiance to God, especially when it comes to material wealth. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your ultimate allegiance is to God. And if I can put it this way, God doesn't tolerate moonlighting. Your service to Him cannot be divided. Your devotion cannot be divided. Your heart cannot be divided. If your lifestyle shows that you love wealth as much as you love God, then you don't love God much after all. Would Jesus do Christmas? I suspect he would, in some way. Um, After all, he certainly enjoyed, as far as we can tell from the Gospels, celebrating festivals, socialising. But would he celebrate it like we do? This is almost certainly the best time of year, to test our approach to money and possessions. So let's use our wealth like the people of the light, not like people of this world. Well, clearly Jesus has much to say to us today about money. And uh, let's face it, it doesn't make us very comfortable. But what about the hot topic of religion? Religion. Well, not surprisingly, Jesus does have a thing or two to say about that. In fact, he's already touched on religious questions a little bit in verses 8 to 13, talked about heaven, devotion to God. But now the uh, issue of religion comes to the fore as the Pharisees, who are the religious authorities of that day, they respond to what Jesus has just said. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. But Jesus launches a stinging rebuke. He says to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The Pharisees objected to Jesus' teaching about money. They found it ridiculous. Contemptible, even. Why? Well, because according to their theology... Material prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. That's how they thought. Uh, We know this not only from the Gospels, but from other historical sources that we have. If you were righteous, they thought, God would make you rich. Therefore, if you were rich, that was a good sign of your righteousness before God. And so the idea that you should uh, give away your money and end up poor, well, that seemed absurd to them. Just as absurd was the idea that you somehow had to choose between money and God. The the two just went together. But Jesus recognises that their root problem isn't a problem with money. They do have a problem with money, but the root problem is a problem with their religion. And so he takes this opportunity now to teach his disciples a short lesson on religion. To set out the difference between wrong religion and right religion. The Pharisees had religion, of course, but it wasn't right religion. It wasn't the religion taught by Jesus. So what was the difference? Well, first, the religion of the Pharisees was based on the world's values when it should have been based on God's values. Note the contrast that uh, Jesus makes in verse 15 between the eyes of men, or man's sight, and God's sight. Wrong religion takes its views from what uh, fallen human beings value the most, rather than what God values the most. But these two sets of values, God's values, the world's values, are completely at odds. What's impressive to men, Jesus says, is detestable to God. And in fact, this whole passage that we're looking at this evening is about following God's values rather than the world's values. Second, the religion of the Pharisees was works centered when it should have been Jesus-centred. The Pharisees had a merit-based understanding of salvation. Your standing before God depended on how good a life you lived, specifically how well you kept all the laws of the Old Testament. They were legalists. Do the right things, and you'll end up in the right place. But Jesus refutes this with an quite astonishing statement. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. What's Jesus saying here? Well, in effect, he's saying that he stands at the center of world history. All of history is divided into two eras. Before, The arrival of Jesus, right up to the preaching of uh, John the Baptist, who paved the way for Jesus, and then after the arrival of Jesus, Jesus who ushered in a new era of God's presence in the world. We need to grasp just how radical this would have sounded. Just imagine if uh, I came up into this pulpit one Sunday and said, all of history is divided into two eras. Before I started preaching and after I started preaching. You'd think I was completely bonkers. And you'd be right. But here we find Jesus making just that kind of spectacular claim. He places himself at the very centre of God's purposes in the world. Right religion is religion that is centred on Jesus Christ. Wrong religion means trusting in yourself in your own good deeds as the way to reach God. That's a religion of despair because we can never be good enough to reach God on our own. Right religion means trusting not in ourselves but in Jesus as the way to reach God. He alone holds the keys to the kingdom of God. As he said on another occasion, very famously, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one more, one more difference here between wrong religion and right religion. The religion of the Pharisees was exclusive when it should have been inclusive. Exclusive when it should have been inclusive. The Pharisees, you see, were elitists. Only the creme de la creme would be saved in their scheme. That's why they mocked, Je- mocked at Jesus for hanging out with the thieves and prostitutes. Well, the kingdom of God didn't have room for riffraff like that. But Jesus takes a very different view. Look at the last phrase of verse 16. And everyone is forcing his way into it. You probably wondered to yourselves that was read. What does that mean? Well, the original Greek of this verse is uh, notoriously difficult to translate. In fact, it can be equally well translated in the uh, in a, in a way so that the verb is passive rather than active. Um, let me explain that. The footnote in the English Standard Version, different translation, puts it this way. And everyone is forcefully urged into it. Everyone is forcefully urged into it. And a number of commentators think that this alternative translation actually makes a better sense of the context of the passage. And I have to agree. I mean, just think about the context here. Jesus has been warning people, he's been preaching, warning people to get right with God and to understand who he really is. He's concerned to proclaim a right view of the kingdom of God. He wants people to enter that kingdom. And so it would be natural for him to say that people are being forcefully urged to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' preaching was nothing if not forceful. But if that's right, then note that this urgent invitation is inclusive, inclusive. Everyone has the opportunity to enter, whether they're a priest or a prostitute, so long as they come through Jesus rather than through their own man-made religion. So there you have wrong religion and right religion. And let me simply ask, what kind of religion do you believe in? Is it a religion like that of the Pharisees or is it the religion proclaimed by Jesus? You know, there are two ways to miss out on the kingdom of God. The first is to miss out because you think you're too bad. The second is to miss out because you think you're too good. I hope no one here tonight will make either mistake. Well, finally, and more briefly, let's see what Jesus has to teach us about sex. We've covered money, religion, now let's look at what he has to say about sex. Jesus has just countered the Pharisees' view of the Old Testament. You don't secure a place in the kingdom of God by keeping the law of Moses better than the guy next door. That's not how it works. But that's not to say that Jesus is opposed to the Old Testament law. He's not saying, oh, just forget it. Just forget all that Old Testament law stuff. Quite the opposite. Verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Jesus wants to be absolutely clear here. He's not doing away with the Old Testament. As far as he's concerned, the Old Testament law is just as relevant as ever. No, Jesus does not oppose God's law. Rather, he fulfills God's law. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the law because he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the law perfectly, in the sense that he he loved God perfectly and he loved his fellow man perfectly. And he's the fulfillment of the prophets because uh, they predicted, the prophets predicted, that he would come, the Messiah, the Christ, the Saviour. The whole of the Old Testament law points to Jesus. He fulfills it. But here Jesus also wants to correct the Pharisees' view of the role of the law. What's the law for? Well, the law is not the door to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the door to the kingdom. But the law still has a role. It serves as the pattern of life for those within the kingdom. Do you see the difference? God's law shows us how people who have already entered the kingdom through Jesus ought then to live. Those who live in the kingdom should live by the king's rules. And God's moral standards haven't suddenly dropped, Jesus insists. His standards are just as high as ever. He's still a holy God after all. But our motive for keeping the law is not so that we can earn a place in the kingdom, but because we're so thankful that we've already been given a place in the kingdom. And so in verse 17, Jesus carefully qualifies his criticisms of the religion of the Pharisees. Jesus isn't, he isn't like a liberal theologian, you know, out with the old, in with the new. No, he's as conservative as they come. And to illustrate this, he takes an example. The issue of marriage and divorce. What are God's standards for the citizens of his kingdom on this issue? Here's, if you like, a test case. Verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who, who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We need to understand that This was radical teaching even in Jesus' day. There were um, several competing views among the Pharisees as to what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. It was a much debated question. What were the grounds for divorce? And most of these views were pretty permissive. One respected, uh, respected rabbi taught that a man was allowed to divorce his wife if she made a mess of his dinner. Another later rabbi held that a man could get a divorce if he found someone prettier than his wife. He was very popular with ageing rock stars. But in, in all these views, the emphasis tended to be on how you could get out of your marriage, rather than the importance of staying in your marriage. And yet that kind of attitude, permissive attitude, makes a mockery of God's law, and it disregards God's original design For men and women. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for the purposes of intimate companionship, mutual support and raising future generations. That is the picture of marriage that is painted in Genesis chapter 2. And it's that picture that Jesus points us back to in all of his teaching about marriage Now, I do need to say at this point that there's an awful lot to be said about the topic of divorce and I'm not going to say it. Jesus has other things to say about divorce. You may be familiar with them. You can look, for example, in Matthew 19 and so does the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. There's other things to be said about the topic of divorce. And if you want to think through this uh, complex issue further, then there are sermons you can download from the website which address this issue or I can recommend some good reading material for you. This evening, however, I just want to make one simple point that I believe uh, reflects the emphasis in this passage and its contemporary relevance for us. Because it's crucial that we grasp all the implications of Jesus' high view of marriage and how it touches on the way that our society today thinks about sex. Think about this. For most people in our society, their view of marriage is determined by their view of sex. Their view of marriage is determined by their view of sex. Sex is in the driving seat. So, if you are uh, okay with homosexual relationships, you should be okay with gay marriages, right? Or if you can't get uh, sexual satisfaction by sticking with just your spouse, well, you can have an open marriage, which is just a euphemism for open adultery. On the other hand, uh, maybe you don't want to discriminate between your multiple sexual partners, just married to one of them. Well then, polygamous marriage would be the way forward, as it is in many non-Western cultures. And then why stop there? I mean, why limit marriage to one species? If you're attracted to your dog in that way, why not show your commitment to lassie with a ceremony and a certificate? Certificate. You think I'm exaggerating now, don't you? But in our day, there are people lobbying to legalise sex with animals and to recognise human-animal marriages. That's the world's way. But it's not God's way. In the Kingdom of God, it's the other way around. Your view of sex is determined by your view of marriage. Your view of sex is determined by your view of marriage. Marriage is in the driving seat. Christian marriage is like a three way covenant, a three way vow, as it were, a binding commitment of love between one man and one woman before one God. And God's wonderful gift of sexual intimacy finds its proper fulfillment in that context, and only in that context. It's a design feature of marriage. And so, followers of Jesus should have a very high view of marriage. The view of marriage that Jesus teaches here. They should have God's view of marriage, not the world's view. And that means they should also have a very high view of sex. One follows from the other. That is the practical application, I think, of Jesus' teaching here, and it is as relevant today as ever please understand this. This teaching of Jesus isn't just for couples on the brink of divorce to sort of pull them back from the edge. Jesus' teaching here applies to every single one of us, whether we're married or single, whether we're young or old, whatever. If for no other reason, because sex is an issue for every single one of us. The society that we live in Make sure of that. Well, I've tried to show this evening that Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God is as relevant today as it ever was. Our society is utterly confused about the topics that dominate our daily lives, money, religion, and sex. But if we listen to what Jesus has to teach us about God's ways, about God's values, then we will be set on the right track. The values of the kingdom of God are not the values of the world. That is Jesus' overarching emphasis in this whole passage. And so we need tonight to honestly examine our own attitudes to money and religion and sex. Are we using our financial and material resources prudently, generously and faithfully? Or have they become an idol Drawing our hearts away from undivided uh, devotion to our Master. What about religion? You may well claim to be religious, even a Christian. But do you follow the religion of Jesus? Where are you placing your trust? Where are you placing your hope? Is Jesus, and only Jesus, at the centre of your faith? And what about your attitude to sex? Are you following God's values in that area or the world's values? Is your attitude to sex being driven by your attitude to marriage or is the reverse true? Well, all of this is a great challenge for every single one of us every day of the week. And the truth is, we cannot live up to the high standards of the kingdom of God in our own strength. We just, we just can't do it. We desperately need God's help. But that's precisely why Jesus came. So let's ask for God's help right now. Let's pray.